And ladies and gentlemen, you're not going to do it from the keyboard? Uh, no, not today. Not to, I was working on doing the message to the tune of Mary Had a Little Lamb, and it just went horribly. It's a bad idea. Hey, uh, welcome everybody, and good morning. And uh, if you're joining us online, I do have one word for you, and that is of apology. Um, so uh, we, we don't have the rights to play the songs that the kids sang to. Uh, at the start of the service, um, so we couldn't broadcast those. Fortunately, a lot of your friends in here had their phones up, and so uh, if you want to, I'll bet you can find somebody who, who has recorded it and would love to share it with you. Um, and didn't the kids do a great job? Uh, that, was, that was fun seeing them. Not only, not only singing, but my goodness, I'm blown away that they raised $1,800 for kids in the Congo. That's incredible. Uh, you know, I, I, we were out of town this week, and when we got back in on Friday and I started, you know, I, I jumped on Facebook for a few minutes, and I saw pictures of kids with, uh, like, lemonade stands, and that were, uh, I think one was, like, selling books and toys that they had, and I knew, I was like, these kids are doing something for uh, VBS, and that's awesome, so super proud of our kids, and, and um, so grateful for the volunteers who led them this week. If you were part of VBS, would you please, if you were volunteering in any way, would you please stand up for just a minute? I know this makes some people uncomfortable, but I really want to say thank you. So, so grateful that we've got uh, adults that love the kids at New Cove and that shepherd them and that disciple them and encourage them. That's, that's just awesome. Um, so thank you so much. Um, I want to talk to you about something really important this morning, and that is toasting marshmallows. This is such, I, we're, we're kind of late into the summer to be bringing this up, but there is absolutely a right way and a wrong way to toast a marshmallow. I'm probably going to get comment cards on this. It's okay. It's, it's, it's worth it to me to get this out there. Um, because uh, I re- recently witnessed someone close to me step out of the darkness of toasting the marshmallow the wrong way and into the light of toasting it the right way. So, thank you. Yes, testify. Um, so, a few weeks ago, we, uh, we were toasting marshmallows at my house. We got out the fire pit. We had, you know, uh, ingredients for s'mores. And, uh, and I've got a couple people in my family, I told them that I wouldn't name names at this point, um, who their method of toasting the marshmallow is, is to just go right into the heart of the fire and wait for that thing to just ignite. And then they pull it out and they, and they, and they, now hold on a second, hold on. And they undo what they did. They blow it out as quickly as they can and they're like, I'm done, I'm good. Listen, there's, 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 there's three things that I want to talk about here. Uh, I value efficiency, I value craft, I value technique. I think these are all important when it comes to toasting marshmallows. So I want to talk to you about the correct way to toast the marshmallow. Now, first of all, number one, placement. You have to, you want to find an area, if possible, that has low or no flame, and, 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 and that's got some coals exposed, some, some, uh, some embers burning right there. Um, that's going to be the best place for the marshmallow. It's going to be a slow cook, okay? Um, number two, rotation. Uh, we bought these a while ago. I brought a prop because I just, I want to share this. Uh, extendable, and this is the best part is with just a touch of the thumb, you can rotate this. I hope that can be seen online, okay? 
because rotation is very, very important. If, if you're on, on your phone all the time, this is just a natural movement. It's just a, <laughs> just a swipe left with your thumb there. Um, so so this is, uh, this is, these are great. They're on Amazon for like 10 bucks for a pack of six. You've got to get them. Extendable. You can store them in your pocket, you know, because you never know when you're going to have a, a campfire that you need to roast a marshmallow or a, or a hot dog or something. Um, number three is time, and this is the key, and this is the difference between those who burn and those who toast, is uh, you need to just you take your time on it. You need to get a golden brown, and by the time it's golden brown, the thing will just about be dripping off of the stick. You know, it's, it's, it's gooey inside, and it is the perfect consistency, and in my opinion, the perfect flavor for s'mores. So, um, a couple of my kids are of the belief that the sooner the marshmallow catches fire, the better They'll go right for the flame, they'll get, wait for that gelatin whipped sugar to ignite, and, and then they'll pull it back, blow it out, and they're done. But let me tell you, it's 1 Corinthians 13, 11. When I was a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, <laughs> but I put away the thing as a childhood, okay? So the best toasting technique involves the nice golden brown, okay? So we were ready a few weeks ago to do our marshmallows. And this time I will say who, so Jack said, you know what, I'm going to try to slow cook it, like, like Dad does, okay? And inside, I'm, I'm, I'm secretly like, yes! And I, and I say a quick prayer that this is going to be a life-changing experience for him. Um, and so he, he does it, like he gets in and he slowly turns, you know, and, and, uh, and takes his time on it. And, and sure enough, like he has, he takes a bite of that s'more. And I, I have a direct quote here, let me look. Oh man, this is so much better than a burnt marshmallow. I'm going to do it like this all the time. So there you go. Jack Jack saw the light. He'll never be the same. And and, I just wanted to start with that. So uh, this is ridiculous, of course. There's no right or wrong way to toast a marshmallow. I just wanted to start with this story. Um, It's just like there's no right or wrong way to put the forks in the dishwasher. Um, This is... Oh, wow. Wow! Mercy. Okay, uh, there's, there's no right or wrong, like, the direction of the toilet paper roll on the dispenser. See, I thought that there was a, a right way to do that until we had a cat, and I realized if it's overhand fashion, then the cat will just, just go to town, and you'll have a pile of it on your floor, and so got to switch around for that. Anyway, these are trivial things that really come down to preference and some experience that uh, shape our belief on these things. And I used to think, uh, and, and for the time, sorry, but there are some things that are weightier, that are more important. Absolute truth is absolutely true in some matters. We might need to sometimes let go of something that we believe so we can discover something better. Sometimes we're blind and we don't even know it. Sometimes we need someone to be the light for us and to show us the way to the truth. Not in the case of marshmallows, that's small, but in other things. We've been going through the book of John, which is the fourth gospel or eyewitness account of Jesus' life. And uh, today we're going to be in John 9, and we're going to go through the whole chapter. In John 9, Jesus heals a man of his blindness. We're going to go through this a section of it at a time. I'll read the passage from the New Living Translation, the NLT. And let me encourage you to do something while we read. Um, if you've got your, the Bible app open, the passages are all there. You can read along if you'd like. If you have your Bible here, you can read along. Um, If you don't, let me encourage you to just put down whatever else you have. Really give God a chance to speak through the word. Be intentional about listening 
and following along with God's word. Um, let's try to put away distractions, put away things that are going to prevent us from hearing what God has to say to us this morning. So, John 9. I'm going to start with verses 1 through 5 here. As Jesus was walking along, he saw a man who had been born blind from birth. Who had been blind from birth. That sounded weird. My bad. Uh, Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? It was not because of his sins or his parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so that the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am here in the world, I am the light of the world. Now let's look at this in more detail. Sometimes we've read a passage so many times we miss details that are important, and this one is certainly true for me. First of all, in verse 1, we find out that the man was blind from birth. This is the only instance of Jesus healing a congenital condition that we know of. It's specifically mentioned in Scripture that he was born blind. Now, the disciples assume that there's a reason for his blindness. They ask Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? This belief comes from the disciples' understanding of Exodus 20, verse 5. In that passage, God is giving Moses the Ten Commandments which are foundational for our faith, and God tells Moses the Israelites are not to worship idols. Why? Uh, Verse 5 says, you must not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God who will not tolerate your affection for any other gods. I lay the sins of the parents upon their children. The entire family is affected, even children in the fourth or third and fourth generations of those who reject me. The Pharisees who were religious leaders of that time, um, taught that a congenital condition was the result of one or both of the parents' sins. If man was born blind, it was punishment for something his parents did or something that the man did before he was born. Did you catch that in the disciples' question? Was it because of his own sin, they asked? The thinking and the teaching at the time was that a person could sin while still in the womb and that it would result in blindness. Unfortunately, this isn't entirely an outdated idea. Uh, James, also known as Jim in this passage, James Bryan Smith, tells a story in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, of a conversation with a pastor he had known for years. Jim and his wife had just given birth to their daughter, Madeline, who was born with a rare chromosomal disease. The doctors told them that Madeline wouldn't live past a year or two. Those couple of years were full of gut-punch moments, including this lunch with a trusted pastor. Smith writes, One day a pastor I had known for years took me to lunch in an effort to comfort me. While I was in the middle of eating my salad, he asked, Who sinned, Jim? You or your wife? I said, Excuse me? What do you mean? He said, Well, one or both of you must have sinned at some point to have caused this to happen. Who sinned, the disciples ask. God must be punishing this man for something. Believe it or not, this idea is one of the most prevalent narratives about God among Christians today. Smith goes on in his book to reference a study conducted by Baylor University that revealed that 37% of Christians believe that God is both judgmental and highly engaged in the affairs of humans. We want a reason for why bad things happen. We want control over the outcome. If I just do good, only good things will happen to me. If I don't do anything bad, nothing bad will ever happen to me. So we assume that God is displeased with us, 
punishing us for something we did when something bad does happen to us. I can't tell you how antithetical this is to the God of the Bible revealed in Jesus Christ. Jesus himself refutes this idea. In Luke 13, Jesus challenged his disciples thinking on this. Uh, Luke 13, 1 through 5 says, about this time, Jesus was informed that Pilate had murdered some people from Galilee as they were offering sacrifices at the temple. So this was an abomination um, to hear about and to find out it happened. Jesus asked his disciples, do you think those Galileans were worse sinners than all the other people from Galilee? Is that why they suffered? Not at all. And you will perish too unless you repent of your sins and turn to God. And what about the 18 people who died when the tower in Siloam fell on them? Were they the worst sinners in Jerusalem? No. And I tell you again that unless you repent, you will perish too. There's one punishment for sin, and we all face it. None of us are worse off because all of us fall short of God's glory. But the Bible reveals that even though we are sinners, Jesus died for us. That's not punishment due for sin. That's rescue from the grip of death. The disciples were asking the wrong questions about the blind man. And Jesus corrected them here and in John 9, too. It wasn't about the man's sins or his parents' sins. It was an opportunity for a miracle. So verses 6 through 12. Then Jesus spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. He told him, go, wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I'm the same one. They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed and now I can see. Where is he now? They asked. I don't know, he replied. It's interesting to me to see the unique way that Jesus healed the man. We, we talked about this in our New Testament uh, class. Uh, Jesus could have healed with a word. Instead, he spit in the dirt, he made mud, and, and then he put it on the man's eyes. And I believe that everything Jesus does is for a reason. Um, and the reason here might point back to the beginning of the Bible. Genesis 2 verse 7 says that God, the Lord God formed the man formed Adam from the dust or clay of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living person. Since this man was born blind, Jesus here created sight using the mud in the same way that God created human. And then he touched the man, put the mud on the man's eyes. It's an example of how Jesus loved those that he came across. The disciples were curious about the man, not out of love for him, but out of the theological debate that it brought up in their mind. But Jesus led into relationships with love. He had compassion for the blind man. He went to him and touched the man. And I have to believe that that's really intentional too. Why would a blind person follow the instructions of a man he had never met for reasons not made clear? Jesus didn't promise him healing if he went to the pool. He just put mud on his eyes and said, go and wash in the pool of Siloam. And the Pool of Siloam was on the southern edge of Jerusalem, so it might have made for a difficult journey. But Jesus touched this man, and the man could feel 
the weight of the mud on his eyes. And, and there's faith. Something about the experience prompted the man to trust Jesus and to obey what he said. So he went and washed and he could see. But here's where it gets interesting. The man starts telling everyone what happened, and his friends and neighbors decided to take him, on, take him to the Pharisees. Why? Because some of them got hung up on one detail of his story. Starting in verse 13. Then they took the man who had been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus had made the mud and healed him. The Pharisees asked the man all about it. So he told them, he put the mud over my eyes and when I washed it away, I could see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man Jesus is not from God, for he's working on the Sabbath. Others said, how could an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? So there was deep division of opinion among them. Then the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man replied, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see, so they called in his parents. They asked them, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? His parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. That's why they said, he's old enough. Ask him. So for the second time, they called in the man who had been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know that this man Jesus is a sinner. I don't know whether he's a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind and now I can see. But what did he do, they asked. How did he heal you? Look, the man exclaimed, I told you once. Didn't you listen? Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they cursed him and said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know God spoke to Moses, but we don't even know where this man comes from. Well, that's very strange, the man replied. He healed my eyes, and yet you don't know where he comes from. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but he is ready to hear those who worship him and do his will. Ever since the world began, no one has been able to open the eyes of someone born blind. If this man were not from God, he couldn't have done it. You were born a total sinner, they answered. Are you trying to teach us? And they threw him out of the synagogue. Getting thrown out of the synagogue, by the way, was a, a huge deal for, the Jew, for a Jewish family. The synagogue was a place of support, community, faith, and an oppressive culture. And the man was thrown out because the Pharisees and some of those uh, who knew the blind man are st were stuck on this one detail. Jesus healed on the Sabbath. He made mud on the Sabbath, which <laughs> just sounds ridiculous to me that Jesus is in trouble because he made mud pies <laughs> uh, on the Sabbath. But this went against their tradition, and it seemed to go against their law. The Pharisees couldn't believe that a man sent by God, able to heal, would be able to do so in a way that broke the law. You know what really sticks out to me as I read this passage? It's control. We desire to have control over the world around us, over our relationships, over what happens to us. And the opposite, I'm sorry, and, and, and we cling to power because it offers the hope of control. And the opposite is also true. We reject ideas or actions that give up control. The Pharisees held enormous power over the Jewish people. They were the guardians of the law, the interpreters of it, the administrators of it. 
And so when Jesus challenged that power, that control that the Pharisees tried to wield, they naturally resisted it in a few ways. First, the Pharisees discredited Jesus. He can't be of God because he broke rules about the Sabbath. All through Exodus, particularly in chapters 16, 20, and 31, God set one day a week apart, the Sabbath, as a day where no work is to be done. In six days, God made the heavens and the earth, and then he rested on the seventh day. So the law given to the Israelites was to rest on the Sabbath day. It was given as a gift. Rest was a commandment, but it was meant to bring restoration, recreation. Unfortunately, over time, this commandment became was interpreted less as a gift and more as a burden, a requirement. But Jesus redefines the Sabbath. If you look up Matthew 12 this week, you're going to see twice Jesus did good on the Sabbath and pointed out that the law that the Pharisees clung to and the rules had exceptions. He says, if you had a sheep that fell into a well on the Sabbath, wouldn't you work to pull it out? Of course you would. And how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Yes, the law permits a person to do good on the Sabbath. Some of the Pharisees didn't see it this way, though. They didn't see a miracle. They saw a man doing work, making mud on the Sabbath. Next, the Pharisees discredit the man and his parents. They refused to believe the man's story. He must be telling it wrong or flat-out lying. So they brought in his parents, and, and look at the questions that the Jewish leaders asked them. Is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he see? They must be telling this wrong or or flat-out lying. And then the Pharisees bring in the man again and interrogate him for more details. He must be telling it wrong or he must be lying. They claimed good motives. In verse 24, they said, God should get the glory for this. But really, they wanted to maintain their view of things as the right view of things, and they couldn't explain Jesus. Someone else must have been wrong. Finally, the Pharisees claim authority or control. This happened in a couple of ways. When the healed man turned the tables on them, they cursed him. They said, we're disciples of Moses. The law given by Moses was the standard for righteousness. And as one commentary put it, Jesus they rejected as a nobody, a vagrant prophet who did not keep the law. Likewise, when the blind man pointed out their flawed reasoning, they kick him out of the synagogue The blind man would have been illiterate. For him to talk back to the educated Pharisees was insulting to them. Again, reading this passage, I see the Pharisees holding on to control. It was more important for them to be right than to show compassion and care. They would rather throw out the man and his family than celebrate the miracle. They rejected what they couldn't explain because to admit that they couldn't explain it meant admitting that they didn't have control. They didn't have all the answers. They didn't know what to make of Jesus, but he certainly had words for them, and it made them uncomfortable. A few years ago, I led a group from New Cove to Southeast Asia to help some missionaries there with their work, and we went into a city and spent time meeting with house churches and with students and new Christians in a country that is outright hostile to people of faith. People of faith represented a loss of control that the government had, um, but that's another illustration for another time. One of the tasks that I was assigned to was to teach a sort of workshop on worship to a a church and their worship team. Uh, They found out that I was a worship leader and they wanted some help uh, with their program, and so uh, 
I, I was never really clear what I was supposed to do going into it. We exchanged a couple of emails, um, but uh, it was the details were a little sketchy, and um, eventually the, the missionary emailed me a resource and said, why don't you take him through this resource? And uh, so it, it was huge. It was, you know, uh, over 100 pages long, and I had like seven or eight hours with him. So I thought, there's no way I'm going to be able to go through this whole thing. But even so, um, I studied it, I took notes, I prepared outlines. Um, the more I looked at this resource, though, the more I thought, is this even going to be useful for them? It's, it's prepared for American churches of a particular denomination, a particular style of worship. But where I'm going, churches are just shut down routinely by the government without notice, so they meet in secret, uh, I was told. And, and I started to really worry about the workshop. Uh, I prayed a lot about it. And even though I had a lot of questions going unanswered, I kept asking God to prepare me for this time. It was really hard going into it. Um, going into what I thought was something really important, but not having a solid plan for the workshop. I worried that I would be no help at all to this church. The first evening we met, I stumbled through some of the material. It was a lot of theology and teaching, and uh, I wanted to help them understand how to deepen their worship of God, but I got a lot of blank stares and, uh, and not a lot of questions, which worried me even more. Um, I had no idea how to best lead and shepherd them. At the end of the night, I gave them an assignment for the morning, um, but I was feeling pretty worthless. Before I left, though, one of the worship leaders asked, hey, tomorrow, could we spend some time with you showing us how to play this particular song? And they, they had a couple of songs that they were looking at, and I said, sure, no problem. The next morning, I started things as planned, but a couple of questions came up that got us talking about more practical matters. How do you count in the band together? How do you transpose songs for a capo and a guitar. What part should the electric guitar play here? As I started answering these questions, I realized I didn't need to keep going through the, the resource at all. I set it aside, and we just started working on music together. They really just wanted to play songs as a band, but they had little or no experience. In fact, one woman learned drums the week before I arrived so that they would have a drummer for the workshop. <laughs> so, we started there. Soon the whole group was separated into smaller groups, some working on guitars, some figuring out harmonies, working on parts to sing, some working on the piano and, and figuring out a better style to play with, some, some working on the drums. The woman who had learned drums was teaching somebody else the drums. <laughs> it was, the excitement and the synergy of it was really awesome. I shared as much as I could in the time that we had. And my point is this. I was so concerned with controlling the outcome of this workshop I tried my best to steer it in a certain direction using the resources that I was given, but I almost missed that I didn't need to steer it. I just needed to be a resource to them to answer questions. I just needed to have faith that God was going to move, that he had me there for a reason. It is uncomfortable to live by faith. If you're not uncomfortable in your Christian walk, then you've got to ask yourself that question. Am I living by faith? Faith is, you know, we, we want to put God in a box that we can define and reason out. We aren't comfortable with the mystery of God because that requires true faith. Living by faith means allowing that we are not in control, but trusting the God who is in control and trusting that that God is good. There is absolutely a right and a wrong way to seek God. The wrong way involves following rules, viewing God as vengeful and angry, 
rejecting people who don't get it, proudly claiming authority over things that we were never meant to control. The right way of following God or seeking God involves faith in Jesus, recognizing in him that God is good and loving, having compassion on people who are in the darkness, and humbly trusting that we don't have to be in control because that's for our good God. The Pharisees believed the right way was to follow the law. They should have learned to follow Jesus, and so should we. So let's finish out this passage here, John 9, 35 to 41. Jesus heard what had happened. He found the man and asked, do you believe in the Son of Man? The man answered, who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, which is kind of a cool phrase to utter to a man who's been blind his whole life, right? And he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. Then Jesus told him, I entered this world to render judgment, to give sight to the blind and show those who think that they see that they are blind. Some Pharisees who were standing nearby heard him and asked, are you saying that we're blind? If you were blind, you wouldn't be guilty, Jesus replied, but you remain guilty because you claim you can see. Uh, I realize I'm running out of time here, so let me buzz through this. But in verse 38, we see that this man has come to faith in Jesus. And if you look back through the chapter, you see this really cool progression. First, in verse 11, the blind man views Jesus as the man called Jesus. He's just a man, but a man who healed me. In verse 17, he calls him a prophet. There must be something about this man. He, He reminds me of the prophets of old, given power by God to do amazing things. In verse 33, he says that Jesus is from God, more than a man given power. This man must have come from God. And in verse 38, he calls him Lord, and he worships Jesus. Worship was the result. The man couldn't control how the Pharisees reacted, couldn't help but tell the truth about what had happened to him, even when it meant him being thrown out of the synagogue, but still, he worshiped Jesus. How can we be more like the blind man and less like the Pharisees. And our worship team can come on up. Uh, I think we have the capacity to be both. We can get this wrong, and it might be hard to see the right way, the Jesus way. We might be blind and not know it. So we have to approach this question with humility, and we might have to release something that we believe in in order to discover something better. A few things that can help us be more like the blind man. First, we need to give up our desire to control and instead live by faith. If we're intent on putting God in a box, we'll have a very small God. We'll have a lot of rules that burden us. And we'll miss Jesus, for sure, who bends to heal us with compassion. Trials and hardships aren't punishment. They're, they might be opportunities for, God, for the good God to work a miracle. Second, I think we need to point ourselves toward Jesus. The Bible uses the word repent, which literally means to turn around. We may need to repent and reorient ourselves toward Jesus in our thinking, asking ourselves, what does my worldview say about where I'm putting my faith? In our devotion, we need to ask ourselves, how can I cultivate a life of faith in how I devote my time, my talents, and my treasures to God? And in our relationships, we need to ask ourselves, how can I point others to Jesus, my spouse, or boyfriend, or girlfriend, or best friend? What about my kids? How can I point my neighbors and my coworkers to Jesus? As I reach out to others, am I leading with love the way Jesus does? And finally, I think we need to worship. The response of the blind man was to worship Jesus. Faith and worship go hand in hand. 
Faith leads to worship. Worship cultivates faith. Jesus is the light in the darkness when we look to him, when we truly see. Let me invite you to stand, and, uh, and we've got a couple of things here. Uh, let's sing the song together, and uh, let me invite you sometime today or, um, or during the week to respond to this message. Go to newcovchurch.org slash respond, and there's a link there where you can tell us what your thoughts are on this message. This song that we're going to sing is a song about hardship and trial that the author encountered, but trusting that God is good in the midst of those things. So let's sing this together.